Deuteronomy chapter 4, and we're looking at the, uh, what does it mean to be truly reformed, the necessity and importance of the regular principle, part 4, and we've come to exegetical considerations, and uh, we've called this uh, specific biblical proofs for the regular principle, and we're just going to go through this, and uh, very interesting stuff, very important material, and of course I preached on this 30 years ago. Uh, but this is this is new material, and I'm just going to read. Uh, I'm going to begin Deuteronomy four, and I'm just going to read to verse six. Now, O Israel, listen to the statutes and the judgment which I teach you to observe, that you may go and that you may live and go in and possess the land which the Lord God of your fathers is giving you. You shall not add to the word which I command you, nor take away from it, that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God which I command you. Your eyes have seen what the Lord did at Baal Peor, for the Lord your God has destroyed from among you all the men who followed Baal of Peor. But you who held fast to the Lord your God are alive today, every one of you. Surely I have taught you statutes and judgments, just as the Lord my God commanded me, that you should act according to them in the land which you go to possess. Therefore be careful to observe them, for this is your wisdom and your understanding on the sight of the peoples, who will hear all these statutes and say, Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people will stop there. When we consider the biblical evidence for the original Reformed confessional understanding of the regular principle, <clears throat> we will see that the exegetical evidence for this position is overwhelming. And I, I would debate anybody on this topic. Uh, the, the, the evidence is just simply overwhelming. The proof is clear, unambiguous, and abundant. It is found throughout both the Old and New Testaments in many explicit passages. It is so clear, in fact, that it is hard to see how or why so many professing Christians and elders not only deny it, but act as if they despise it. You read the articles against the regular principle by Steve Schlissel, for example which were published in the Chalcedon Report, showing that theonomists are antinomian with respect to the first table of the law. The vast majority of uh, theonomists are antinomians regarding the first table. Certainly Gary North and Rushdoony were. <clears throat> well, let's look at the moral law. The first explicit statements that teach this principle are found in the moral law. In Deuteronomy 4, 1-2, we find a statement commanding sola scriptura with a reason why adhering strictly to stricture without adding or detracting is necessary. Now, Israel, listen to the statutes and the judgment which I teach you to observe that you may live and go in and possess the land which the Lord your fathers is giving to you, that you shall not add to the word which I command you, nor take away from it, that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God. The Israelites are encamped on the plain of Moab, east of the Jordan River. They're on the verge of entering the Promised Land. And their conquest of the, the, uh, with the physical force of the land typifies Christ's con Church's conquest of planet Earth with a spiritual sword. Matthew 28, 18-20, Revelation 19-15. You bear with us. We all had COVID this week, so... Israel has been set free from a worldly tyrant. They've been saved by God to serve a new master. 
Yahweh, which requires strict faithfulness to the covenant stipulations given by special revelation. The hateful enslaving domination of Egypt has been exchanged for the loving, merciful rule of a sovereign, true and living God. Exodus 15, 18, 19, 4 to 6, 21 to 17. Moses says the prophet, the mediator, the leader of the covenant people, preaches a series of divinely inspired messages to prepare Israel for covenant faithfulness and godly dominion. This, of course, includes corporate sanctification in the promised land. And as you know, Deuteronomy is a preaching, it's a covenant renewal document. His message will include crucial aspects of Israel's salvation history, as well as reminding the people of their failures for the emphasis <coughs> of these covenant renewal sermons is on the covenant relationship between Yahweh and the people. God has been perfectly merciful, gracious, and faithful, and he's established the covenant relationship through the blood of the Lamb, and he's instructing Israel on how carefully, diligently, and habitually to maintain that covenant relationship. This is discipleship. They were saved and given a law. The law is not to get saved. They've already been saved. The law is to maintain the covenant relationship. Yahweh's love initiated the covenant, and by love, biblically defined, the people are to obey the covenant. Solo Scriptura is absolutely essential for the maintenance of Christian love and fidelity to the covenant. We are to love God with a whole heart, mind, and soul, Deuteronomy 6.5, and this involves habitually keeping all of his statutes and commandments, Deuteronomy 6.2. As Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments, John 14.15. That's the identical message as Moses. The law, now we're sanctified by Christ, that's true, but the law is the standard by which, by how we are to be sanctified. It is the expression of how we are to love God. Consequently, the Sola Scriptura principle is much broader than Christian worship. It also applies to doctrine, ethics, and church government. Now, Moses presents Sola Scriptura as a bulwark against human autonomy and ethics in worship. For the covenant people to keep God's law, the law itself must be protected from human additions and subtractions. God has his own law to protect his law. Yahweh speaking to man through special revelation is the sole source of authority. Whatever God has revealed unto man is not to be reduced or supplemented. And the presupposition of this command is that adding or detracting from God's law weakens, neutralizes, waters down, <coughs> and corrupts that law. And this lesson is precisely what Jesus taught in Matthew 15, 
when he rebuked the Pharisees for nullifying God's law through their human additions. Pharisees were angry. Jesus and his disciples weren't following a church law that they had instituted about hand washings. And Jesus tells them why he won't submit to their handmade, their man-made traditions. Because it nullifies the law of God. It may appear very innocent, but it nullifies the law. It is ironic that those men who speak of general overarching principles of the worship, in order to add their own ideas to worship, Steve Schlissel, Doug Wilson, James Jordan, Peter Lightheart, many others. Are ignoring an explicit overarching divine command that covers the whole sphere of worship. The Pharisees said, well, we love the law so much. We love the law so we're so dedicated to God's law that we need human laws and traditions to be added to it in order to fence the law and protect it. That was their justification for human additions. We're fencing the law. We're protecting the law. We're adding laws to the law to protect it. But God himself has already given us his own law to protect the law from human additions, subtractions, and traditions. This is the law to protect the law. Men deny this law and come up with all sorts of excuses and clever arguments as to why it no longer applies to us, the New Covenant believers. But when we look at their presuppositions and motives, we discover that they really are only attempting to justify their subtractions. For example, abandoning exclusive psalmody and abandoning real wine and communion in a real cup. And their human additions or traditions to Christian worship. Isaiah 8.20, to the law and to the testimony, if they do not speak according to this word, it is because there is no light in them. Sola Scriptura. It's our charter of freedom from idiots who call themselves elders and pastors who are idiots and act like Romanists. If we keep the requirements of Scripture pure and entire by refusing to diminish it or expand upon it with humanistic inventions... How can we go wrong? How can we go wrong? What could possibly be immoral or corrupting about that? Obedience is better than sacrifice. This is what always amazed me, you know. My, my Christmas book came out in 94, and it was hated, and it was, uh, people said, I'm a legalist, and it's legalism, and, and I'm all, well, if we're just obeying the word of God, if we're just following the word of God, how can that be legalism? Legalism is when you make stuff up and you put pressure on people to do it and it's not in the word of God. That's legalism. Legalism is not submitting to what God says. God's word is perfect and sufficient. If we add to it or take away from it, we do not improve upon it. We only corrupt it and make things worse. 
If churchmen add human traditions to the worship of God, are they not implying that Yahweh lacks wisdom, care, precision, and faithfulness by not giving his church or loving bride sufficient instructions for his own service? You're implying that it's simply insufficient. God didn't get the job done. In the context of covenant relationship, where the church is compared to a bride or a wife, and here's some passages here, look them up later, Isaiah 61.10, 62.5, Jeremiah 3.20, Ezekiel 16.32, Revelation 21.2, and 9 and 22.17. The job of the wife is love, devotion, submission. Not autonomous legislation or setting out on her own. We're the bride. We're to do what the bridegroom tells us to do. Now before we look at how the solo scriptura principle is repeatedly applied in scripture specifically to worship, we need to dispense with a common objection to the regular principle that flows from a misunderstanding of this text. I acknowledge this text is talking about the whole law of God. This is Sola Scriptura in capital letters, and it applies to, it's way broader than simply worship. Now, in 1232, a little later, it'll be applied by God specifically to worship. And there'll be reasons. But here, it's applied to everything. And here, the argument goes something like this. And you say, well, this is a stupid argument. Well, this is the argu main argument of Steve Slissel and people like Doug Wilson. Deuteronomy 4.2 refers to the whole law of God, not merely regulations and ordinances dealing with worship. Since the whole of the Torah or Scripture regulates all of life, not simply worship, one cannot say that we need divine warrant for everything. For then we could not eat pizza, drive a car, wear pants, go skateboarding, or fly in a plane, etc. Since we can only live by Deuteronomy 4.2 in a general, non-literal or specific manner, then the same statement, do not add or detract, found in a number of worship passages, such as Deuteronomy 12.32, must also be taken only in a general or loose manner. And that's almost word for word what Steve Schlissel says. And people point to Steve Schlissel's article as the best article you can find against the regular principle. And it's a joke, and I've totally refuted it, and it's in my Christmas book in the appendix, my second edition. Well, the anti-regulativist argument is really absurd on the face of it if we analyze it carefully and logically. If we accept their interpretation, then God is essentially telling the covenant people, do not add or detract from my law. Oh, by the way, I only mean this imperative in just a general manner. What I really mean is that you can add or detract from my law as long as you are really careful about it and do not do anything crazy or blatantly sinful. I want you to obey my law only in a general way. I trust you to change, eliminate, and add to my law because life is very complex and you need pragmatic flexibility and some human autonomy and ethics to get through the day. Well, does the history of the Old Testament Israel demonstrate that a little human autonomy and flexibility in the law was a help to the people of God's covenant faithfulness and walk with God? The answer is no. 
the subtractions and additions were a complete and total disaster. Read the book of Judges. Read First and Second Samuel. Read First and Second Kings. Read First and Second Chronicles. Read Isaiah. Read Jeremiah. Read Ezekiel. No, God was not giving them flexibility. And what about the history of the Christian church? Did the flexible general position of the anti-regulatives keep the ethical practices and worship of God pure and entire? And the answer is no. It produced an apostate whore. The evil persecuting of Antichrist, the Roman Catholic Church. Have the Reformed churches benefited spiritually from abandoning a strict interpretation and application of the regular principle? And the answer is no. We live at a time of liturgical anarchy and progressive decline. Most modern Presbyterian churches in the realm of worship have more in common with the Assemblies of God or an Arminian Baptist church than the practices of Calvin, Knox, or the Westminster Divines. That's true. And I'm telling you, Calvin and Knox and the Westminster Divines would have nothing to do with the vast majority of Presbyterians today. And they'd have nothing to do with Joel Beakey in his so-called Puritan seminary, which is anti-Puritan. Because they arrested people who celebrated Christmas and put them in jail, and they were defrocked and excommunicated if they didn't repent. Proverbs 3, 5-7, to Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he shall direct your paths. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and depart from evil. Proverbs 4.27, do not turn to the right or to the left, remove your foot from evil. Proverbs 30, verse 6, do not add to his words, lest he rebuke you, and you be found a liar. If the anti-regulativist argues that this analysis is unfair, for we are only speaking about circumstantial areas of life that are adiaphora, well, then they've refuted their own argument. And we'll turn our attention to that now. Christians have an obligation to redeem the time, take good care of themselves, and be responsible financially so they can live an effective, sanctified Christian life. Oh, here I am. The problem with this argument, which is common among non-regulativists, is that all of life and what what are to be a part or element of worship are two very different categories with two radically different amount of circumstances. What we do in public worship is extremely narrow. What are the elements of public worship? Well, you've got singing praise. The Bible teaches that has to be inspired materials. We have prayer to God. We're, we're allowed to make up our prayers as long as we follow the pattern set forth in Scripture. There is uh, the preaching of the Word, the reading of the Word, the listening to the Word. It's a very limited thing. Public worship is very limited. There's not a whole lot of things, you know, and then we have the Lord's Supper. But what about all of life? Well, that, that's a lot of stuff. It, motorcycle racing includes, it includes hang gliding, it includes all sorts of things. All of life contains thousands upon thousands of things that are only circumstantial to ethics or proper Christian behavior. Things like picking a toothbrush, food, clothing, transportation, planting a garden, what brand of tools, whether to skateboard, jog, ride a bike, or walk. These are only circumstantial to biblical ethics, and thus they are done to Christ's glory according to the general principles in Scripture. 
following Christian wisdom. Christians have an obligation to redeem the time, take good care of themselves, and be responsible financially so they can live an effective, sanctified, productive Christian life. Treating one's body poorly and being financially irresponsible are not biblical, and they impede dominion or Christian social progress. So you see that all of life has a lot of, way more, almost a virtually infinite amount of circumstances. But that's not true of Christian worship. And regarding areas of life that are ethically indif- indifferent or adiaphora, that are they're under the general principles of Scripture, there are at least four biblical principles that must be followed. First, everything we do, no matter how mundane, must be done to God's glory. First Corinthians 10.31, Therefore, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Romans 14.7-8, For none of us lives to himself, and no one dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. Second, a matter that normally would be indifferent ceases to be indifferent if it would cause a weak brother to stumble. Romans 14.21, It is good neither to eat meat nor to drink wine, nor to do anything by which your brother stumbles or is offended or is made weak. Okay, there are things that are totally lawful for us. But if we have a brother over who's very weak in that area, and in the context is obviously Jews who were still uh, keeping some of the ceremonial laws, you don't want to do things that would cause them to stumble. Even though those things are perfectly lawful. Third, an activity that in itself is indifferent ceases to be indifferent if it cannot be done in faith with a clean conscience. Romans 14, 14. To him who considers anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. He who doubts is condemned if he eats, because he does not eat from faith. Whatever is not from faith is sin. So if you're not sure that something's biblical, don't do it. And then fourth, an act that normally is adiaphora ceases to be adiaphora if a person becomes enslaved to or comes under the power or control of that activity. 1 Corinthians 6.12, all things are lawful for me, but but all things are not helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be brought under the power of any. 1 Corinthians 10.23, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but not all things edify. There are many things that are lawful, such as Twinkies, Big Macs, candy bars, Coca-Cola, and fine cigars, beer, that can be abused and thus do not edify. Even organic brown rice can be abused and used in a sinful manner. So yes, if you want to go out and have a little junk food once in a while, that's fine. But you don't want to be enslaved to something that's going to harm you. Same goes for the use of tobacco. If you have a cigar once in a while, it's not going to hurt you. But if you smoke cigars all the time, like Rush Limbaugh, you might get cancer and die. And then you're can no longer be serving Christ in this world. So, things that are general, under the general rules of Scripture, have certain principles. Moral commandments which are explicit, absolute, and unchanging, however, are non-negotiable and cannot be added to or detracted from. For God is the sole source of ethics for persons, families, institutions, churches, and civil magistrates. No one has the authority to go beyond what the Bible teaches and declare something to be good and ethical that God says is bad and immoral, and vice versa. 
Okay, if a church says alcoholic beverages are a sin and you're not allowed to touch alcoholic beverages, uh, that church is in deep sin and must be disobeyed. That's legalism. Now, if you're a drunkard, a repentant drunkard, and you're seriously tempted by alcohol, then yeah, you should abstain. Obviously, you can't abstain in the Lord's Supper, though, because then you'd have to violate Scripture. To do so is tyrannical and contradicts Christian liberty, biblically defined, and the necessity of faith. When man, when man makes himself the creator of right and wrong, good and evil, he essentially declares himself to be God. Men do not have the authority to create ethics or to declare a thought, word, or deed evil or sinful apart from establishing that something is wicked and sinful by a biblical commandment or deduction from the Bible. Okay, this whole anti-booze movement at the 1800s that was very popular in the RPC and they got totally caught up in it. It's all satanic to the core. And the ministers that implemented that were in deep, deep sin. And all that they accomplished with all that was the great rise of the Mafia and thousands of deaths. Because if God says something's okay and a blessing, as long as it's not abused, we, see, we have to trust what God says. If we were to apply the anti-regulatist argument to God's law like they apply it to worship, then churchmen have a creative role to play in Christian ethics and they can add to the Ten Commandments and the moral case laws just like the Pharisees, who are large, strongly condemned. Matthew 15, 1-9, Mark chapter 7. The anti-relativists, like the Lutherans before them, deliberately confuse and mingle circumstances or things offer with commanded or authorized categories, whether ethical absolutes or how we are to worship Yahweh, in order to muddy the waters, obfuscate, equivocate, and thus deceived uninformed congregants. So this argument, which is used by Steve Schlissel and his comrades, the Romanist faction, Doug Wilson and these people, they're, they're, they're basically all heading toward Rome. They want us all to head toward Rome. And they call it, like, this is high church liturgical, liturgicalism. No, it's just heading toward Rome is what it is. It's horrible. They're being very deceitful. Can the anti-regativist prove that the parts or elements of worship authorized in Scripture and thus required by God belong to the sphere of life that is only circumstantial or audiophora? Are they in the same category as planting tomatoes, eating oatmeal for breakfast, wearing blue pants, or driving a Mustang instead of a Camaro? And the answer is obviously not. Obviously not. Christian worship is something prescribed. We receive the parts of it and the content of it directly from God speaking in Scripture. The circumstances surrounding worship are simple and few, while the circumstances of all of life are almost infinite and variable. Consequently, 
People are often easily confused by anti-reformed, anti-confessional, anti-biblical, anti-rational equivocations. Remember, areas of life that are on the offer correspond not to worship ordinances, but to the circumstances of worship. Now, when Paul was in Corinth and they were worshiping, what kind of seating were they sitting on? We have no idea. doesn't really matter. Once this observation is understood, the truth and wisdom of the regular principle becomes clear. In addition, when we examine how the regular principle is applied in specific cases in Scripture, the anti-regulative interpretation of Deuteronomy 4.2 is at once refuted and rendered impossible. So that's why I began with the general solo scriptura principle, Deuteronomy 4.2. It's a very general principle. And then God himself is going to apply it specifically to worship. And let's look at Deuteronomy 12, 1 to, 1 to 11, and 27 to 32. And I, I've called this covenant stipulations designed to secure purity of worship. These are the statutes and judgments which you shall be careful to observe in the land which the Lord your God of your fathers has given you to possess all the days that you live on earth. You shall utterly destroy all the places where the nations which you shall dispossess serve their gods on the high mountains and on the hills and under every green tree. And you shall destroy their altars, break their sacred pillars, and burn their wooden images with fire. You shall cut down the carved images of their gods and destroy their names from that place. You shall not worship the Lord your God with such things. I'm going to have to stop here. I'm about to pass out. Uh, we'll take a break. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your regular principle. Help us to understand it and apply it to our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Whew.